This morning's passage is from Romans chapter 3, verses 27 to chapter 4, verse 12. It can be found on page 1129 of the Blue Church Bible, in the leaflet or on the screen. You may follow along. Romans chapter 3, verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith, that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Thanks be to God. Per usual, you will find an outline in your leaflet that you would have received at the door. It's going to be really helpful also if you've got your Bible open. Uh, so you can be having a look at that, making sure it's actually what I'm saying actually lines up with what Scripture says. Uh, but uh, it's a great passage that we're going to be turning our attention to this morning. Now, I want to ask you, what are you proud of? What are you proud of? What is it that you go to when you are searching for something to make yourself feel better? Maybe you've had a really hard day. Maybe someone has leveled criticism against you and you go to something inside yourself and you go, no, actually, I'm okay because dot, dot, dot. What is the dot, dot, dot that you might fill in? If you're like me, you might go to your devastating good looks, perhaps. I know I'm okay because I'm actually the most beautiful person in the room. No, not actually, I don't do that. But maybe, maybe it's your intellect, maybe it's your sporting ability, maybe it's your group of friends, maybe it's relationship that you have, 
Maybe it's your family. Maybe you go and you say, actually, I'm okay because I'm involved in community groups. I'm involved in church groups. I do all sorts of stuff. I'm a good person. Because what is it that you're proud of? What is it that you boast of? Making noise out the back like the kids. Pride is a funny thing. Because on one hand, if you go back in Christian history, Christian thinkers have talked about pride as the foundation of sin. It's the root of sin, pride. But if you go into our society, you'll actually see that our society tells us that pride is a good thing. You've got to have pride to have self-esteem, self-respect, self-worth. You hear those kind of things. How do we wrestle with this? Because pride is an issue that saturates the passage that we're looking at this morning. Can I suggest, when you look at it, pride is dangerous. It separates and divides. It makes you look down on others. At the best, maybe it's condescension. At the worst, maybe it's contempt. What are you proud of? Let me give you an illustration. Maybe you're proud of your job. Maybe you've got a job and you do it well. You do it well. You are acknowledged in your workplace. You're given accolades there. You're given a good salary. And you take pride in it. What will tend to happen is that you'll begin to look at the person who doesn't have a job with pity, with condescension, with contempt. Perhaps you'll look at the person who is the slacker at work and you'll use terms like that. They're slack. I'm committed. I'm the real thing. And there will be divides. Perhaps you'll look at those whose careers have stalled. You've gone from strength to strength and you look at someone else who's struggled, a bit of a job there, a bit of a job there. And you'll have pity that will branch over. Oh, poor them. Condescension. Thank goodness I'm not like them. Contempt. Pride can be dangerous. And not just work. One of the things I've noticed... And I can say this, and I say it very carefully to not identify which side of the debate, if anything, I might come down on. Mums who stay home and look after kids, mums who go off to work, I've seen both groups looking down on the other. The contempt that is expressed can sometimes be horrendous. If they were a real mother, then I can do this. And so we take pride in these things. Maybe at school, you know, you've got the people who are part of the in-group socially or maybe the sporting elite or maybe it's the music groups and so forth. And there's that sense that they're in and, you know, you're not as good as us. Maybe it's not said explicitly, but maybe, maybe it is. For the Christian, the Bible presents pride as a real trap. We've got the story of Gideon. You might be familiar with Gideon. 
You know the guy who, the Midianites are causing all sorts of problems for God's people. And so Gideon is raised up as a leader and he musters an army and God says, no, it's too big. And so he sends home everyone who's afraid. God says, it's still too big. And so he does this groovy little thing with drinking habits, uh, whether you scoop up into your hands or whether you lap like a dog. And eventually he gets down to 300 people and you get the reason there in Judges chapter 7. The Lord says to Midian, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands. It's not that he can't, but he won't. Or Israel would boast against me. Israel would say, my own strength has saved me. Pride leads us to this self-reliance, this I can do this, and it's a huge issue. And this morning, in the book of Romans, we're seeing a church that has a fracture through it because of pride and boasting. If you are with us last week, you'd actually see that Paul, at chapter 3, verse 21 to 26, has laid out the core of the Christian gospel. In the answer to our unrighteousness, our condemnation, Jesus brings us the righteousness of God through faith. In answer to the wrath of God, Jesus turns aside that wrath by his sacrifice on our behalf. In answer to our slavery to sin, Jew and Gentile alike under sin's power, Jesus redeems us by the blood that he shed on the cross. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And now Paul begins to unpack it. If you remember, one of the key issues that he was writing to address in the Roman church was this division between the Jews and the Gentiles. And this is now the focus of Paul's address. Now, if you're, if you're looking at this carefully, what you'll see is a great way in how the gospel, what God has done for us in Christ, answers the fundamental needs of life. And so here we have Paul moving from that gospel and unpacking how it works out in terms of how people relate to each other in church. Now, I ask you, what do you boast of? Do you boast? We'll come across it. When I was a kid, one thing I did not boast in is my athletic ability. I was the guy who would win the race when everyone else who was in championship or division events were excluded. So they went across there and there was a race that they used to run for those kids who are too slow to be in the championship or division. I used to win that one. That was my boast. Uh, you know, what did you boast in? We all know it as kids. Kids lack subtlety. So, you know, they'd come up and they'd go, well, I'm better than you. You know, I'm faster than you. I'm better looking than you. I'm better at cricket, better at netball, better at maths, better at music, better at whatever. I'm better than you. Kids do it. Do we do it? Do we do it? As you grow up, you learn subtlety, don't you? And so maybe you don't say it. But I guarantee you think it. I guarantee you think it. You boast to yourself when you compare yourself to others. When you judge others. 
Have you ever said to yourself, I'd never do that. I'm glad I'm not like that. I'm glad my kids don't do that. Oh, do you ever judge? Do you ever compare? Do you ever seek to establish your identity horizontally? You look at others and you say, well, I'm better than them. You're boasting. You're boasting. You're building your worth, your identity. To use a biblical term, you're building your righteousness on comparison, on something that you think you are good at. You are saying, I am valuable, I am secure, I have significance because I can do this. But maybe this morning you don't think that at all. Maybe you actually go, actually, I, I know, I'm a failure. And if you flip pride around, what's the other side of pride? It's despair, isn't it? It's shame. Maybe you don't boast in achievements. Maybe you live with that sense of shame. You know you're not good enough. But can I say, this form of what I will call negative boasting, negative pride is just as powerful and perhaps more dangerous. It's easy to make it look like humility. But what ends up? You end up putting on a mask. You end up playing a game where you let people see just bits of you, but not the real you. Because if they actually saw the real you, would they accept you? Would they love you? Would they let you in? Brothers and sisters, this kind of pseudo-pride is pride because you know what? The proud person who boasts, what are they thinking about all the time? They're thinking about themselves. The person who wallows in this kind of despair, this kind of shame, what are they thinking about all themselves? They're thinking about themselves. C.S. Lewis said it brilliantly. When he spoke of humility, he said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's not walking around thinking, I'm rubbish. That's not humble. That's self-obsessed. Humility is, that doesn't factor in your thinking. Maybe you're sitting there now thinking, well, that's another thing I can add to my list of failure. I thought I was humble, but now I'm not even humble. I'm sorry. Jesus gives you the answer. In this church, the Roman church, but this church, where is boasting? What do you boast in? What do you hold up as your source of righteousness? The foundation upon which you stand. What was it? What was the issue in Rome? If you look in the Bible there, you'll actually see, if you do a little bit of detective work, you'll find out who's boasting and what they're boasting about. Big key comes there in verse 1 of chapter 4, where Paul says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? So who's he speaking to? He's speaking to Jewish believers. He's speaking to people within inside the church, but he speaks of our forefather according to the flesh. And when you unpack his argument, you'll see that the Jewish believers are boasting 
they're boasting about their spiritual status. They're boasting about the fact that they have Abraham. They have the law. They have circumcision. You Gentiles, you're like second-class believers. You know, it's really good that God saves by grace because that's the only way that you're going to get in. We've got all this heritage. We've got all this status. And you can see how destructive that would be in the life of a church. You can know how destructive it is in the life of our church, perhaps. And Paul answers this boast. And he gives us three answers there. Firstly, in Romans 28, or 3, verse 28, let me read to you. It says here, he says, We maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's what his argument from 21 to 26 has been. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by that same faith. What's he saying? There's one world, there's one God, there's one humanity that has one main problem and that problem is sin. And the one answer that God has given to sin is in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so therefore, if you're a Christian here today, you're a Christian because of the grace of God given to you in Christ. There are no first class and second class citizens. We are all saved by grace. We are saved through faith. That is there. We're all sinners, Paul's saying. There is no difference. It's not that some of us get in on works and other of us scrape in on grace. It's not that some of us were born into, you know, Christian family. You know, I'm in because mum and dad were in. No. You're a sinner who needs God's grace. You receive that grace through faith in the gospel. There is no difference, Paul is saying. And he actually says in verse 31 that faith upholds the law. If you are going to keep the law, the essential ingredient is faith. You cannot keep the law apart from that faith. Our obedience flows out of that faith. Paul says we're all the same as he says in Romans 3, verse 22, no difference, Jew and Gentile. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified. One world, one God, one humanity with one problem and one solution. If you are a Christian, you are a Christian the same way as every other person. That's his first argument. Second argument, he goes on in uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, what should we say about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? What did he discover in this matter? See, Abraham was held up by Jews as the guy who got it all right. They went particularly to the story, if you're familiar in the Old Testament, God, to test Abraham's faith, he asked him to sacrifice Isaac, the son, that he had made all these promises about bringing blessing to the world through Isaac. And so God is testing Abraham to see if he will obey. And they went to that story and they said, look at his obedience. Look how wonderful he is. Look at how righteous his works are. But Paul goes back a little bit further. 
He says, if Abraham was justified works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the scripture say? Going back before to Genesis 15, verse 6, where God makes promises to Abraham. And it says these words, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So the big part that Paul brings about Abraham, if you're going to major on Abraham, he says, major on the faith that he showed that then led him to put his trust in the God who keeps his promises. Hebrews 11 unpacks that story about Isaac in exactly that way. He says he trusted him who could raise the dead to life. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So much so, he says in verse 5, he trusted a God who justifies the ungodly. Abraham knew he was a sinner. Abraham, described here by Paul, not as a great paradigm of righteousness, but as ungodly and needing to be justified, needing to have faith uh, credited as righteousness. He needed a righteousness not of his own, as we do. Now, Paul here is unpacking. I want to get a little bit technical. So if you're writing down notes, the word to write down here is imputed. Now, I'm being a little bit technical because I actually think this is a helpful concept to understand because when, the the, when Christian thinkers, theologians, are thinking about this passage, uh, and when they're thinking about it helpfully, can I say, there's lots of unhelpful theologians out there, uh, but what they major on is that this is the God who justifies the ungodly. And they use a term, imputed righteousness. And what happens in the gospel, by faith, so God has done this work through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we tap into that by faith. And that faith itself is God's gift to us. And what happens is a two-way transfer. That our sin goes to Christ and he dies bearing the penalty of our sin and his righteousness comes to us. It's the two way. It's kind of like, you remember these things? Uh, For those of us who are old enough, we used to try and balance our check accounts. Does anyone remember them? Uh, And uh, they had little stubs. I was hopeless at it. I'd always write checks and forget to write the little bits. There's probably accountants here shaking their heads, shame on you. And there were occasions where I can remember overdrawing my check account. Uh, And then they whack you with a massive fee. Uh, And it was some extraordinary amount of money because you'd gone three cents over. You ended up owing them $40 or something for the privilege of that. Um, Imagine I'd overdrawn my check account by, let's let's say, a million dollars. And the bank says, Cameron, we're going to forgive you that debt. Okay, so my financial sin goes to the bank, okay, and I'm zeroed, okay? Does that make sense? Can I say that is only half of the equation? But I reckon for most Christians, we stop there. We walk around as zero people. There's nothing against us, but there's not really much in our favour, But what the doctrine of imputed righteousness actually tells us is that not only does our sin go to Christ, but his righteousness and the riches of grace that are there in him come to us. 
And so it's like, instead of going to my bank account and finding that my million dollar overdraft has just gone to zero, I've got like a squillion dollars in the bank. I've got this extraordinary thing. The Bible uses things like this in Ephesians chapter 1. He talks about the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's not saying he's just wiped away your offences. He's done that. That's the first transfer. But the second part is that he has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. John says it like this in 1 John 3. He says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. I think so often we live with just the first part. We miss the fact that the riches of God's grace are there for us in Christ as a free gift imputed, credited to our account, not by works, so no one can boast. It is a free gift to us. And so Paul says you can't boast because you're all saved by grace. You can't boast because Abraham was saved through faith. And you can't boast because in Romans 6, uh, four, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, King David, you know, the great king of Israel, Breaker of the sixth and seventh commandment, thou shalt not murder, commit adultery, the whole Bathsheba thing, learn about it next week, smash them completely. And what does David say? He says, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them, will never be credited to them, never reckoned against their account because it is reckoned against Christ's account. And so, brothers and sisters, Paul blasts boasting. Jew and Gentile, you can't stand and cast stones at each other because you're actually all in the same boat together. If you're Christian, you are saved in exactly the same way, freely through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what are we boasting? What do we boast in? What do we look to? What do we look down on others about? What are, we, what are our touchstones for our identity? I am a dot, dot, dot. What is our self-made righteousness? Why would God be happy with you? Why would God be pleased with you? What do you fill in that gap? Why would God accept you? Why would God rejoice over you? Or does he? What do you fill in that gap? Because I'm a nice person. I'm a good person. I go to church. I give money. I serve. I evangelize. I read my Bible. I say my prayers. They're all Christian stuff. I'm a good person. I'm a rich person. I'm a successful person. I'm a great business person. I'm a good parent. I've got a great marriage. What do you go to? What do you go to as the touchstone for your identity? Because we inevitably, left to ourselves, seek to establish our identity in comparison to others. I'm taller than he is. 
I'm fatter than she is. I'm smarter than they are. We do it to establish our righteousness, our identity, horizontally. But brothers and sisters, Paul says you cannot do that. Because as soon as you do that, you will divide. And God in Christ has united us and brought us together. So what are you proud of? Or maybe what are you ashamed of? Because that will divide you just as surely. That pseudo pride. We're so aware of our shortcomings. We feel our lack. We doubt our right to be here. If only they knew, then they would not accept me. Brothers and sisters, our pride and our shame are excluded. Why? Because we don't establish our righteousness horizontally. We establish it vertically because it has come to us from God as a free gift Received by faith. It is so quick, so important that we grasp that. Because otherwise we put our trust in things that will never stand and things that will wreak havoc in our lives, that will destroy our relationships. Now, can I just make a a quick aside? I've been a little bit down on pride, you might say, this morning. Uh, you might actually be sitting there saying, can't I take pride in my achievements? You know, I worked hard, I did that. Is there not a good part of pride or do we always have to be, is pride just totally out of the ball? Can I say, there is a good part of pride. But pride coupled with thankfulness. Maybe you aced the test. Who gave you the brain? God gave you the brain. Who gave you the opportunity to go to the school to get the education? God gave you that. Who allowed you to have parents to do that? God gave you that. Why were you born in Adelaide and not in Syria? Well, you wouldn't be going to school and you wouldn't be acing the test. If you're blitzing it at work, if you've got a great family, there is a godly contentment only when it is coupled with a thankfulness, a thanksgiving to the one who has given you everything that you take pride in. Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, what do you have that you have not received? Everything you have comes from God. So why do you boast like you haven't received it? Why do you say, look at what I've done, where the only reason you've done anything is because God has made it possible for you to do it. So brothers and sisters, there is room, I think, I like the word contentment, with thanksgiving. We acknowledge that God is the giver of every good gift. Where does Paul land? Paul lands with an old Sunday school song. Do you remember singing Father Abraham had many sons? Many sons, said Father Abraham, I am one of them, so are you. So let's all praise it. And then there was the right arm, left arm. I don't know where that came from. But anyway, um, Paul makes that point. 
There's not two churches. There's not first-class, second-class Christians. To the church in Rome, Abraham is the example of faith, the father of faith, for both the Jew and the Gentile, because Abraham was saved like, like you are, by God's grace through faith. That's how Abraham is declared righteous vertically. And if you are going to be declared righteous, if you are going to have an identity that will never be shaken, it has to be one that comes from God as a gift through the gospel. It cannot be one that you establish horizontally. We have one boast that we can make, one boast that is legitimate. Paul says in Galatians 6.14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the one boast. This is the one righteousness that will not distort you. If you establish your horizontal righteousness, you will end up condemning, pitying, condescending others. For those of us who've been paying attention to what's been happening in our culture around us, you know, particularly around the whole gender issue. There is, on the left side of politics, a crusade going on where they fervently believe that they need to wipe out gender distinctions. They need to bring in what they call marriage equality. They need to do these things. And have you felt the scorn, the contempt, the derision sometimes even the hatred that is directed against people who disagree. Can I also say, sometimes I've heard it coming from the Christian side, as both take righteousness, one in their ideologically liberated views, one in their conservative Christian fundamentalist views, both of them condemning the other. But we cannot have that. If we are going to be a community that is a gospel community, we are a community, not that gives way on truth and says it doesn't matter, but I'm not right. I, my identity doesn't come from winning that argument. My security comes from God through faith in Christ. And so therefore I am actually set free not to condemn but to love because that person is a sinner who needs the grace that I've received. As a sinner, if they are to be saved, they're going to be saved exactly the same way as I am. It levels us all. The cross is our boast. Where does it lead us? It leads us to destroy false hopes. If you're sitting here this morning saying, I'm a great parent, You may be. Don't build your identity on it. I'm a good worker. I'm a great friend. I'm really pretty. I'm really smart. I'm really musical. Whatever it is, see that for the illusion that it is. Thank God for the goodness, for his blessing of you in that. But do not rest your hope in it. Do not seek that thing to establish your righteousness because otherwise it will destroy your relationships. Put false boasts aside. Jeremiah 9. 
Let not the wise boast in their wisdom. They don't walk around going, oh, I'm not wise. They are wise, but don't boast in it. Or the strong boast in their strength, or the rich boast in their riches. But to let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on the earth. For in these things I delight. We have a boast. And our boast is not in ourselves; It is in God and in what he has done for us in Christ. And so this humbles us. It should lead us to embrace others. It should let us let down our guard that we actually let people get to know the real us. Because our identity is not built upon whether they like us or not whether they think we're great or not. Our identity comes from the gospel. And so it allows me to actually be honest with where I'm at, to seek the help of my brothers and sisters and not just play the games. Brothers and sisters, are we a church that is actually prepared to be honest with each other? What if I'd come in today And I'd stood up here and I'd told you the list of things I'd done this week of which I'm ashamed, repentant. Maybe if I shared all the struggles I have, what would you feel? Oh, I don't know if I want to go back to that church again. Can you not see that the gospel greets all of us. The gospel establishes us securely in Christ so that we can do that. You should expect your leaders to be seeking God in all things, but you shouldn't expect them to be perfect. And when the cracks show, you should expect them to deal with them in the grace that God gives. And you should extend that and to one another. Are you prepared to let people see the cracks in your life? Because those cracks don't define you. God defines you. Son, daughter, loved. And those cracks cannot touch it. And one of the gifts God gives us is each other in that. But our pride and our boasting shuts us off. Brothers and sisters, will we not see that the gospel, the gospel levels us down, it humbles us down, but it also lifts us up. It embraces us and it elevates us to a point where it doesn't matter what you say. I am secure in Christ. It may hurt, but you can't touch that. And the world cannot touch that. You have an identity, you have a security, you have a value as a child of God that nothing can take away. Paul tells the Romans, stop playing these games. Stop defining yourself in comparison to each other. Stop seeking your security and your significance by comparing yourselves with others. Know the gospel. 
know the value that God has placed on you freely in Christ. Know the gift of grace and let that transform you. I'm going to pray.